Now, again, and I've said this a thousand times, so it's, it bears repeating, I think, there has never been any sort of evidence at all to suggest that Doreen left 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road at any point. I, There's no evidence. I want to remind everyone, too, that all the things that she is reported to have left with were all found in her room. Her denim jacket. Uh, Donna has the denim jacket now. We saw the denim jacket. We touched it. It still has an evidence tag on it. Do you know why she has that jacket? Because what? Mark told the Bethel police that he was wrong. She must not have been wearing that. And so they released it from evidence. That's right. So spectacular police work by Bethel as well. Well, mm-hmm. it does my heart good to know that Donna has that jacket because you, it, it I, I, I think I touched it once. It, it pains me to touch it because you can just see the kid in it and it's so heartbreaking. Um, and I love Donna, but Donna should not have that jacket. Correct. It's a mm-hmm. piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. Another concern that, uh, one listener raised on the main page, um, this person told us to keep in mind that investigations now are so much different than what they were 30 years ago. Um, And then went on to say that once the police have all the evidence and facts, there's no way they won't investigate. Oh, we know. I say that. Well, yeah. I talked to a very high-ranking and very well-known law enforcement officer in the state of Connecticut, and I'm not going to say his name. You guys know who I'm talking about. He told me the Wallingford police didn't have the capabilities to solve a crime like this in 1988 and they don't presently to this day that it's not a uh it's not equipped enough it's not uh funded enough that a case like this is probably beyond their scope well they need to start paying attention to us before they can do anything and so one of just to tie in with the question you just read i found a really old question from when you started the podcast era from the wallingford Connecticut Community Forum, and it was, um, couldn't someone use forensic science to help solve the case? So I made a list of the forensic science real quick that I want to go through, and we can discuss all of these. Um, Let's start with the alibi barn. It's gone. Um, It's weird to me that there was no police presence on that property or looking after that property four months after she went missing to and, and, you know, they went through the zoning board. The zoning board gave them a permit to tear that down. Nobody said, hey, if anything weird happens at 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road, let us know. Maybe Mark might be tearing down his alibi bar. Which is interesting because when they built the patios and stuff, nobody pulled permits for that. Right. So it's weird that obviously when the police were kind of looking that they did go apply for permits. Right. Um, it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the denim jacket. Um, we, uh, let's see, Mark says in a text, which I think you read last time, Joe, or one of these times, um, the shirt in his truck. He said, it was an old shirt of mine. I'm a carpenter. I might have gotten blood on my hand. I wiped it off. They tested it. Now, I am not sure to this day whether there was a DNA test on that shirt. But the shirt that they found in his truck was not Mark's shirt. In official records, which we have all the papers right here, that shirt was a size and style similar to what a young girl would wear in the late 80s, it's described as. It's not Mark's, it's not Sharon's, it's not Paul's, it's not Sarah's, it's Doreen's shirt that Mark was just riding around with in his truck for a year. Hmm. Weird, right? Okay. It doesn't sit well. 
I'll tell you that. Also, you know, Mark tends to do this. Mark tends, like we said, with the gun being shot past Donna, he tends to pick out specific details and hound them. Right. So, Deny the detail, not the fact. R- yes, that's exactly it. So he he wants us to know that, yes, there was a shirt in his truck, but it wasn't Doreen's shirt. It was an old shirt of his, and it had blood on it, which was a new detail for me because I've never heard the blood backed before, except from Mark, who seems stuck on it. Um, let's see. We've talked extensively. They never did a forensic search of the house that day. Um, I told you detective number three, who has now been promoted. I sent him my list of questions. You know, when was the first search of the house? It was a year later. They went in, um, the window screen was torn and there was still broken glass on the floor. But they also observed that the rest of the room had been cleaned. Yes. Very cleaned. Also, Mm -hmm. He, he, the, the, the cop and th- they make a lot of these logical jumps, which I sit there and kind of go, uh. he said, um, you know, you guys thought maybe it was a bullet hole through the screen because one of our theories was Mark likes to shoot guns at women. He can't gun under his control. Shoot it into the wall. Maybe he shot a gun at Doreen. Um, he said it didn't look like a bullet hole. It was just a torn screen. But like you said, Joe, if you shoot a bullet through a screen, what, what does the screen look like a year later? The screen would eventually get to the point where it's tattered. Um, if it originally started out, and again, you got to understand, when and, and, and I talked to an expert on this case too, because I always want to know, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, once you've split the screen, that hole's just going to continue to get bigger and bigger Yeah, and I think bigger. anybody listening to this who's ever had a window screen knows what that is like. Also, yeah, when it course. comes to as far as the glass is concerned uh, and the reason why it was described as a bullet hole, um, the police suggested the whole window would have shattered. That's also incorrect. It's like they don't understand ballistics at all for police officers, which is shocking. Uh, in fact, if you shot the bullet directly through the window at a straight angle, it would travel directly through it, causing a bullet hole mark in the window and not shattering the entire window. But Correct. that's just what gun experts have told me. <laughs> Sarah, you said on the last one um, about all the things that they missed because they didn't do the search of the house. Right. They didn't miss the glass and the hole as it looked that day. They didn't, you know, they missed the clothes. They missed the denim jacket and the sneakers and all that stuff. But one detail that's been left out that I want to touch on is the ladder because this has always yes. bothered me too. Carol and Debbie showed up at the house and they said that there was a ladder on the outside of Dorian's window, which when I thought about it, I'm like, did it, was he trying to make it look like she was trying to escape? Was he trying to climb up there? Was someone else trying to climb up there? I can't figure it out. Probably I would assume going up there to fix the to window. Fix the window. I remember when you yeah. first suggested that. And that to me seems like the only explanation of why specifically a a ladder would be there i mean unless it's just he was going to do some other work on the house and that just happens to be where he said it but doofus again what a huge coincidence that would be my here's my theory would be that he was gonna go up there and fix the window got the ladder set up maybe he went out to go get whatever he needed to fix it and then they showed up well, and also, and then he was just like, "Well, forget it now." It's mm-hmm. you know, it, we're not speculating about the window being broken because of something that Mark did. Because this is another thing Mark does. The window got broken because he pushed her, not because he shot into it. Like that's so not any better. That's okay, right? Yeah. He definitely broke the window when he pushed her. So you know, the police would have seen the ladder by the window if they had gone. Also that day, Sarah, when you and I went and met Lieutenant DeMeo. 
we brought the 2001 article to his attention. Yeah. Um, with the quotes from Hanley about Paul O'Connell in the woods, seeing the truck. Um, one thing I want to point out is uh, Lieutenant DeMeo had never seen that article before. And he actually came over. Yeah, he came over your shoulder. Read, and read it over it. my yeah. shoulder. He really wanted to see it. That article says that long black hairs were found in the truck bed. So I asked him, you remember what he said? Animal hairs. Animal hairs, right? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of animal, and I, I don't remember any evidence about Mark and Sharon having a dog or whatever. What kind of animal has long black hairs? And where are those hairs? And what have they done with them? I'm trying to think of an animal with long black hair and nothing. Like a big, like long haired bear. I don't under like and he has a bear in his truck. I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Those hairs have gone. And then I think in the article it even says we found long black hairs, but we didn't have anything to compare it to at the yes. time. Which is bullshit because they have Donna's sorry. They have they didn't have anything to compare it to at the time, which is not true because they had Donna's hair and her mother Jane's hair or DNA that they had been tested for DNA. Yeah. One of the other awful parts of that whole story as far as the items that were left behind, as you mentioned, the, the, the Reeboks and the jacket and the shorts, was the wallet. Yeah, oh, because that's a good call. Because Mark and Sharon said that Doreen had between 50 and $75. Mm-hmm. And, and the wallet, when it was found, had nothing in it. Correct. Yeah. Which, which means that they, they either never gave her the money or that they took it out of the wallet after she disappeared at some point. Right. And I, I think robbing um, someone who just died is about as low as it gets. A little kid. Yeah. Your daughter. Yeah. Um, Assuming that they're the ones that took the money. True. Mm-hmm. Could have been anybody. Well, it wasn't Paul and Sarah. <laughs> nah, I, I was being sarcastic yeah. so there. So here's... One more thing, and this to me is one of the biggest ones. And this, you know, this ties into our questions. You guys touched a lot last week on the the cops and why the cops don't seem to want to take, you know, any direction or any input from us, really. Um, I asked, uh, I'll call him detective number three. Um, what do you have? Because some of the reports that I see say the wallet, the bag, the jacket, the shoes. But then other references are made to, um, multiple other items. So I said, what do you got? He said, oh, and this, this also bugged me. When they gave the search warrant to Sharon, um, she refused to give everything up until um, they showed her the search warrant. I'm sorry. When they first asked Sharon for the things, she refused to give everything up until presented with a search warrant. And then the search warrant says, the search warrant for Mark says, um, when shown the search warrant, um, she surrendered the items. Which, you know, I don't want to see a woman's house get tossed, but they didn't execute a search warrant. They allowed Sharon to give up the items that she had. Um, Number two, Sharon later would say, oops, I made a mistake. I forgot Doreen's um, recorder and uh, microphone. And they allowed her again to surrender items, you know, this time that she had forgotten. So I asked detective number three, what else you got? He went down into the Wallingford evidence room and... um, He said Sharon led the cops into the basement and there were boxes and boxes and bags and bags of Doreen's things. So she took everything. Mm -hmm. I said, what does that mean? Magazines, little trinkets, um, 
board games. They've got all sorts of stuff. I said... And it's all been tested for DNA, obviously, Well, that was my next obvious question. You've tested all that stuff, right? And detective number three said, well, I don't know why we would forensically test a board game. (laughs) Yeah. A board game from a room where a little girl was, at the very least, beaten and shoved into a window. At the least. So we've talked about the missing comforter. Yes. I've got a whole theory on, on, you know, what I think happened. We've discussed what would it take to throw out a comforter? What would you have to do to a comforter before you called it ruined? And blood, a lot of blood on a comforter. Generally, you can't get that out. And that would be a reason you'd get rid of a comforter. We don't know where her comforter is. I always think But assuming that there was blood, be it an accident, be it something worse, you're right, Jess. Anything in that room could very well have traces of blood on it. So to answer the detective's question, that's why you would test it. I mean, God, Mm -hmm. think about all those forensic files that you watch, right? Like, I remember the Haddon-Clark case. Yeah, we've talked about this before. Yeah. They went back to the house where they thought the murder might have occurred. And the floors where that little girl died, where Haddon-Clark killed that little girl, Michelle Dorr, had been refinished, re-sanded, new wood and everything. In the floorboards, in the cracks, there were minuscule amounts of blood. They were able to find it. And I mean, it wasn't 31 years later. I think it was like six or eight years later. But you know what? But There's it was something there. there. But it was there. That's you got to look, though. Well, and you that's why. You got to at least look. That's why I'm tired of being told that we're going to be the one little pebble, the stupid pebble that somebody kicks over, um, you know, that might solve this case. Because to, you know, and I don't want to toot our horn, but I will. Uh, the family has told us multiple times, and I, and I don't doubt it. You know, we bring stuff to the Wallingford Police Department all the time that they don't have. They hadn't talked to Mark. They were surprised to hear, Joe, that you had spoken to I, Mark. Yeah. yeah. They didn't know where Mark was. <laughs> no, they, they didn't, didn't know where he that he worked at Teen Challenge. Now, I remember when Jess and I met Lieutenant DeMeo, Jess um, brought up, um, do you know where Mark is working now? And uh, Lieutenant DeMeo was just kind of like, oh, well, he was a religious guy, so I'm guessing something to do with the church. And... We just told him, uh, yeah, he works yeah, at a place this called is where Teen Challenge. Is. This is the exact spot where he works now. We found that out. They never even looked. If they had tried calling Mark or looked on Google the way that we did, they could have found that out. I got Mark Vinton's phone number in about two minutes. Well, it's like that woman from the Southbury Training School. How did you get my number? I highly doubt you got it from Google. Well, I have it, so don't worry about it. If you don't have anything to hide or if you're not saying anything weird, then don't worry about it. You know, one, Sarah, I don't mean to jump ahead, but this sort of like relates in. Laura from the followers page said, given Mark's profession, were there any construction projects he may have worked on around the time Doreen disappeared? Did he ever do foundation or concrete pouring work? Is it possible he may have concealed her body under a concrete floor? Okay, so we're, we've talked about the patio, which guys, I mean, I wanna get up there with, you know, sonar too, the Fergusons aren't going to let me up there. We don't have the power of the police. By the way, Mark's laid cement at other times as well. Teresa yeah, uh, has a couple of stories that's nuts. about Mark and cement. And and 
I've said this to people before, but typically when someone's laying cement around the time somebody goes missing, I don't know. Not a good I mean, I'm not Sherlock Holmes, but they're generally connected. Well, then add in, you know, the tearing down of Alibi Barn. Yeah. And the burning of the diary in the driveway. Just a lot of coincidence. So Laura says, given Mark's profession, were there any construction projects? Sarah, I think you'll remember when we spoke to Lieutenant DeMeo, we said, oh, well, you know, I don't know. Do you know what Mark does for a living? Maybe what he does for a living has something to do with it. And I said, oh, construction and carpentry. He said, oh, I don't know if, you know, maybe you know his boss's name. Maybe you could get in touch with his boss. I said, oh, Frank IML. Mm -hmm. And he was shocked that I knew those things. And I hadn't had a chance to talk to Frank IML yet, but you better believe that was number one on my list when I got home from talking to Lieutenant DeMeo. Um, I asked Frank IML that question. Um, He was working for you around the time that Doreen disappeared. Any concrete work? You know, any construction projects that might have allowed him to hide a body? He said, absolutely not. We did carpentry. Like, we built, you know, decks and we painted, but there's no construction involved in Frank IML's paint. Getting back to the alibi date real quick, too. Frank also pointed out that they didn't work Saturdays or Sundays. That that was special projects, and he couldn't recall Mark being on one. That's right. So Mark didn't paint for Frank. Saturdays and Sundays. On the weekend. (laughs) So again, it just heightens the idea that this would have happened on Sunday the 12th. Saturdays and Sundays for Frank's paint were... Um, what did he call them? Oh, commercial projects. He's painting office buildings. And um, Mark painted houses, not office buildings. So he's not working on Saturday and Sunday, right? So if he's coming home from work at 4.30, it's, I don't know, what day is it? You guys tell me. Is that Wednesday? What day? I don't know. Again, I think they conflated the the two different dates. I think the alibi, because again, if it happened the 12th, the alibi's the 15th, and they talk to the police on the 18th. You ever try to tell somebody a lie <laughs> days after you formulated the plan? Don't go as smooth. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I think there was a lot of conflating. And again, it, it's all in the warrants that, that you would see a whole entire year later. But Mark had a lot to say. And we got to see quite a bit of it. And uh, none of it was good, and a lot of it was contradictory. You know, I'll tell you one thing. The day I got those two pages, and again, just for the law geeks in the audience, the only reason I have those two pages are because they formulated evidence in the gun trial. Mark admits that he was a felon, and Mark admits that he has a gun. Boom. That's all they needed to convict him on. Well, they had more, but that's the two pages that were exhibits in the trial in Danbury. Funnily enough, when I called Dan Barry and said, I want to see the trial exhibits, they told me destroyed, which is something that happens a lot. You know, in this case, a lot of stuff is gone. A lot of people are dead. A lot of evidence has vanished into thin air. A couple days later, they called me. They said, you're in luck. The, you know, we were supposed to destroy all this evidence. I said, oh, you found it? The woman who wishes to remain unnamed said, yeah, you know, the wheels of government always don't turn the way they're supposed to. The stuff was supposed to have been destroyed. I mean, it was just sheer luck. That those pages were there. Sheer luck mm-hmm. or government bureaucracy. Yeah. Sheer. <laughs> so I go, I go in and I, um, you know, my hands were shaking as I take out the pages from this envelope because I'm thinking you drove all the way to, down to Danbury to get what? Two pages. What's he going to say? Remember, those are the pages where he says that he's afraid to see her 
After all these months, he's afraid. Weird thing mm-hmm. to say. And he says to it four, four times. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to see her. He says it like four times within three lines. Um, you think maybe he meant he'd be thrilled to see her back home? No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't, I don't think so. No, Again, that, those weren't even close to the <laughs> no. to the words he used. Well, what's so. Occam's razor? What's the most obvious? <laughs> what's the most obvious thing? Why are you scared to see her? Because she's appearing to you in your nightmares? Because it's like the telltale heart. I don't know. Um, what else did he say? He said a lot of weird stuff. Well, again, he explained the whole commotion and all the racket going on at the house. Oh, because the bomb went off at the house, remember? No, right. no, the bomb at the house. The bomb at the house. I'd love to know more about that, Mark. Well, again, mm-hmm. with the what did you say before? This the specificity of the detail. There's something he wants you to believe a bomb went off at his house because there was a loud noise, guys, at the house during that time period. Right. He says he got the gun that he bought with Sharon because a bomb went off in the yard. So you're telling me, because he gets the gun at the end of June 88, like two weeks after Doreen goes missing. So you had a fight with your daughter. She vanishes. And then a bomb went off in your yard. That's weird. To me, my theory is there was a gunshot and it sounded really loud. And when you need to explain it later, you're telling people a bomb went off in your yard. Could be. Mm Mm-hmm. Could be. Let's get to the next question here. Um, this is a question from our friend Skip <laughs> on the on the group. Um, have we considered bringing in a medium? Um, a medium was brought into this case years ago by the name of Colette. Um, she was brought in by a friend of Donna's. Um, we, uh, Jess and I, uh, were at Donna's house during Donna's 60th birthday party back in January. And when we were there, uh, Donna gave me a little uh, little cassette tape, um, and it had it was a recording of this psychic medium. Her reading on uh, on Doreen that uh, Donna's friend went and had done. the The audio is not good on that tape, but there are a few things that you can glean from it. Um, one thing right out of the gate that the psychic talks about is. She says, she, as she asks about an inheritance, I, I should preface this too. I am not a believer in this kind of a thing. I, I will concede that sometimes police departments do use things like this. Um, there are some things that in the five minutes or so of usable audio that the psychic says, like she asks about an inheritance. Um, she poses the question, I know she was only 12, but could she have been pregnant? Oh boy. Um, yeah. But- oh, that's probably a where, because, and you mentioned this last time, the first time we met Donna and the gang, they pretty quickly told us that they thought she might've been pregnant. And that was somewhat surprising at the time for us. Uh, but given a lot of the evidence that we've seen, and we'll, we'll spend some time on that later on. You combine that with the medium and uh, yeah, I could see where, people definitely would have would have felt like there was something to that. Well, quick grain of salt real quick because it, the I think it was July of 99 when the medium came in. You know, the medium says a lot of things. Right off the bat, she says pregnant. But she also says things like the stepmother and the father and rural area. And it makes me wonder because, you know, I'm not necessarily a believer in this stuff either, but if you're going to do it, you should go into it cold. And this woman seemed to know a lot of really specific details. The Mm -hmm. one thing I will say 
is the inheritance was, is Dorian or somebody going to inherit a family farm? And that detail is really specific to Mr. Farnham, who did in fact inherit, inherit a farm because he did his father's farm. Hmm. Um, she kept saying things like, um, "I and and I don't know this from the recording because the recording was poor, but." I know she kept saying the word Hunter. The word Hunter kept coming up. Um, Hunter just happens to be Mark Vincent's middle name. Mm-hmm. So. What? <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah. There was something about um, a family crest yep. and a flag. And what's that? I don't know. Oh, I thought you had more. I was going to say, wow. No. I'm oh, just... I did not know that. That Wow. Wow. Um. But you know she she remembered too in the in the video or I'm sorry she remembered too in the audio something about you know she said that Mark is going ah and there's all this screaming and she kind of made you envision yourself as a small person with a large person who is Mark in this woman's imagination being above this small person and yelling and making a big commotion so again maybe Colette knew stuff she wasn't supposed to know she's doing a psychic reading but. You know, that's just take it with a grain of salt. Where would she have gotten that info in all of the accurate articles the Record Journal wrote? Nope. How would she know that stuff? I don't know. That well, that is oddly specific and 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 in many ways accurate. And and again, it's not like this information would have been attainable because it wasn't. I want to move on to the next question. We have seen this question a lot since we did the last episode. Um, we were talking before we started recording, if we should even go into this, um, what is the thing that almost happened in 2003 that we touched on in the last episode? And I think, um, instead of just saying it, we need to set the scene in how we found this out. Um, this, we found this out when Jess and I met with Lieutenant DeMeo. And that meeting with Lieutenant DeMeo, it's important that you know, we didn't call him. He called us and said that he had something he wanted to share with us and, quote, wanted to see what we could do with it. Yeah, he said, I want to see what you think about it or what you do with it. So that's still a mystery to me because, you know, the Wallingford police, you should know, have been very clear as they should be that we are not to act as their agents. They're not giving us any direction. They're not telling us what to do. Um, They certainly don't want us to do certain things, but they wanted to impart something to us. Now, we went in there, Sarah, and we'll go into this later. Um, You know, I had information um, that we had long suspected that the Wallingford Police Department was in possession of the underwear photos that Mark himself admits to having taken. And we're going to do a whole episode on that. I think that's important to treat separately. When we went into the meeting, you said this last time, Joe, he said chronic runaway at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to know he did a great job on this, but, you know, she was a chronic runaway, which is not true. Correct. I said to him, what's this information that you want to give us? Is it about the pictures? And DeMeo looked in my face and said, oh, the underwear pictures? Nobody's ever proven that those exist. And I didn't say underwear (laughs) photos. And I looked him back in the eyes and I said, I've got it on good authority from two people that they're in this building right now. 
But you know what, guys? It wasn't the underwear photos because the Wallingford police still will not admit to them even having existed, despite the fact that Mark told us that they do. In the war. Yeah. His own words. He's in. Well, be, I mean, point that out. It's in the warrant. Mark literally talks about photos of Doreen in her underwear in the arrest warrant. It's there. It's literally yeah. Mark said it. That's yeah. what Mark told the police. Yeah. I mean, I, no speculation, no guessing, no wild accusations. Mark told the police those exact words. Why isn't he in jail for? We've talked about destruction of evidence child neglect and endangerment, child pornography. Um, but I think the audience has waited long enough. Why don't we tell them what DeMeo said happened? Just for the record, <laughs> I still, I would hold this secret a little bit tighter, but the people have spoken. Well, we're it. not saying, and we did have a debate about it before releasing it. You know, Sarah and I are on the side of releasing it and Joe's not, but um, it's, it's not hearsay. It's not going to prove the actual thing, which is that this happened it's going to prove that DeMeo told Sarah and me that go ahead Sarah he told us that in 2003 Mark Vincent thought that he might be dying for some reason he thought that uh he had some some ailment and he thought he was going to expire soon um so Mark through his lawyer told the Wallingford police that he had something he wanted to tell them, but he would only tell them if he had full immunity. And what ended up happening was um, the state's attorney said no to the full immunity. So it never happened. Yep. And that was the last of it. So it's important to remember that DeMeo's specific words were in part information relevant to the disappearance of Doreen Vincent. He said, um, we had guys ready on this and everything. They were even ready on a weekend. They were here on a weekend. Okay. Um, then the state's attorney got cold feet because they were concerned it was going to blossom into a full-blown confession. So take that, you know, for, take what you get out of that. It, it, it might have, I think it had something to do with someone else. Whether it had something to do with anybody, him or whatever, asking for full immunity, number one, is, is, is generally speaking a deal breaker, especially if they don't know what you're going to tell them or who you might be trying to pin it on. Yeah, you can't make a contract for something that, that you don't know what you're getting on the other side. You know, he could have said, uh, yeah, I helped Jimmy Farnham pull the barn down in October, but I didn't do anything. I'll have full immunity. I mean, that doesn't work that way. You have to offer something in exchange for the immunity, and then they weigh it. Now, I remember when you guys told me this at the time, it was quite the bombshell. And uh, I'm sure right now people are <laughs> reacting to, oh, my God, what? But here's, here's, um, I, I, all right, here's what I want to ask you ab about this. It, it, they told you you could use it. <laughs> they told you you could do what you wanted with it. And they were curious your opinions on it. Um, yeah, I remember specifically Jessica asked Lieutenant DeMeo more than once. She asked him a few times, what do you expect us to do with this? And Lieutenant DeMeo, I can remember him right now, he just kind of sat back and shrugged and he says, 
do whatever you want with it. But Wait, Jessica, what's the first thing you did with that information, though, that I don't think he was banking on? Well, let's let's I mean, and this is why everybody it's great. This is why everybody needs to take us seriously. You know, we're not monkeying around here. Number one, that information came with a caveat. Michael Darrington was the New Haven State's attorney at this time. Don't call Michael Darrington. Remember, Sarah, because he's too old. He's retired and he probably doesn't remember. Right, he's senile, isn't that correct? That Uh, is what he said. Except for that, he's not. (laughs) Well, it doesn't really matter because you don't, when you call the state's attorney's office, you don't call the guy, you call the office. The person who's currently in the job. So I called, what's his name? Patrick something. It escapes me right now. I don't know. They gave me the runaround for about two weeks. They wanted to know, they they were surprised that I had called. They wanted to know where I got the information from. I'm doing this podcast. I'm an investigator for Sarah Dimio. Um, you know, I wanted to know any information they could give me on a 2003, you know, wannabe confession. And again, remember when we're saying this, we're not saying it happened. We're saying Lieutenant DeMeo told us it happened. That's an important distinction to remember. Um, you know, they called me up and they basically told me we can't say anything about this. Um, and then Lieutenant DeMeo called me back. And mm-hmm. chewed me out because I wasn't supposed to have used that information. I'm not really sure what I was supposed to have done with it. And, you know, I'm under no obligations to the Wallingford Police Department. I want to find this little girl. Of course I'm going to call the state's attorney's office and ask them for information about this putative confession. To what? Murder? Child abduction? For me, the most striking thing about this... And, and this has literally been because it, it had been 15 years yeah. since Doreen disappeared when that when that possible information for immunity thing even even came up. It has now been 15 years. Well, 16 Four. years. Yeah. <laughs> since it's actually been longer since that happened than when it first happened in connection with her disappearance. And I find that mind blowing. Mm-hmm. That the Wallingford police in 2003 were waiting to nail this guy. And 16 years later, they're no further along than they were that day in 2003. Yes. And again, with I'm going to just throw grains of salt all over this. This is why it's so important to have people like Debbie Pereira and Teresa Lyon involved in the investigation. And those two aren't going to let it rest. I mean, those two are at the forefront. They are not going to let this one lie. They both say that there's no way that someone like Mark would confess and lay his body down like that. I said, why not? And they both said, because he thinks he's smarter than everybody. Hence the riddles. Right, Joe? Yes. Mm-hmm. The, whole, the text that we read in the last episode, yeah. the, is it a picnic basket? Mark Vincent, even... the Riddler. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but again, guys, it... I've not been able to do anything with this information because nobody wants to talk to me about it. Nobody wants to acknowledge it, you know. Um, But apparently this guy wanted to impart information relevant to her disappearance 16 years ago. Well, we do have a source and we are going to follow up with that source to try to get some information. Because as I said before on this show, we bring you the facts. There's no speculation or guessing. We follow the we follow the evidence and the clues. Yeah, we we don't know what Mark was going to say that day. We're just telling you what Lieutenant DeMeo told us when he asked us to come in and meet with him that day. We are going to try to verify that this thing happened and whatever details we can get out of it. And if we're able to 
confirm it or get more info on what this was, we'll certainly update you in the near future. And that was the reason. Again, I'm not trying to play games with people. I just thought, let's try to get this thing hammered on. But you guys are right. That's information that the Wallingford PD shared, probably shouldn't have. And at least from what the state's attorney said, definitely shouldn't have shared. But we, in our last meeting with the Wallingford police, agreed both sides had the same interest. And that was finding this girl. And we'd continued to work towards that goal. And I just don't feel like the Wallingford PD have upheld their end of the deal. I'm not trying to attack the Wallingford Police Department. Like Jess has said, like you said, Sarah, we're trying to help them. We're bringing them evidence. We're bringing them people to talk to. And, 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 and I remember telling Chief Wright, we'll give you a list of people you guys can speak with. We'll give you what they told us and what they know and what you should ask them to find out on your own because you're the police. You can do more with this information than we can. Yes. And mm-hmm. from, from what I can tell, they've done zero. When did we meet with With them, the Joe? information, March 4th. March 4th, okay. So They've done zero because the people that, that we told them to speak to, we've spoken to a lot of those people. And they ain't heard from the cops. Well, yeah. Sarah, do you mind if I jump ahead real quick? There's sure. a question from Barb from followers of Faded Out, which, I mean, you guys went through this last week, but there's so much more. Why the stonewalling by the Wallingford Police Department? Now, you guys have to remember, you know, we're just regular people. We're not investigators. You know, we have a family. We've got jobs, all sorts of stuff. Um, we started out our relationship with the Wallingford Police Department with the press release that Sarah read last week. Yes. Couple issues with that. Number one, it arrived as a Word document to me, not a PDF, so I could have done whatever I wanted with it mm-hmm. and sent it out into the world. Number two, it was not sent out into the world because Debbie Pereira, crack investigator, looked it up on the Wallingford Police Department's public official press releases and you know who that press release wasn't issued to the public it was issued to sarah jess and joe well the wallingford pd will be surprised to hear this i shared that press release with every news organization in the state (laughs) they've all got their hands on it yeah and and why no one's followed up or done anything with it I guess the Connecticut media could explain themselves. Okay. The press release, and this is something that I've run into time and time again, the press release was inaccurate in multiple ways. Yep. Um, it says Donna knew that they had moved. Well, yes, Donna knew that they had moved. Well, DeMeo from- tried to argue that in our meeting, too, when we insisted he was wrong, and he told us that we were wrong, and we were like, we talked to Donna. Right. You didn't. What are you even talking about? Right. Again, it's this ins- this insistence that they did such a great job, and they've got all this amazingly accurate information, and yet somehow, 31 years later... They still haven't solved what is seriously a very open and shut case. Yeah, or it Mm -hmm. should be. Here's another thing um, that really rubbed me the wrong way in that press release. Um, It's written that the phone number at the Wallingford residence was not established, and that prevented communication between Donna and Mark, and that was the reason for the lack of reporting of Doreen missing. I mean, that, okay, let's, let's just start. The phone number was established because when Donna called the old Bridgeport number, 
Remember how phones used to work? The mm-hmm. operator tells you, nope, Mark and Sharon are not at this phone number anymore. They're at this new that location. That number's been changed to a new number. To a new number in Wallingford, which was how Donna found out they had moved to Wallingford. Right. Um, I find You know, it- the, the police would know that if they had ever spoken to Donna for an actual interview. I also Correct. find it really insulting that one of the reasons given for the lack of reporting of Doreen being missing was a lack of communication between Mark and Donna. Why does the fact that Donna doesn't know where they live or she's not able to get in touch on the phone or whatever, what does that have to do with Doreen not being reported missing for at least three days? That makes no sense. No, it doesn't. Um, you know, I, I hate I hate to slam you, Lieutenant DeMeo, but when we met with you too, you did say... Um, well, it was a recently divorced family. And Joe and I looked at him and said, Wrong uh, again. Nope, they'd been divorced for about 10 years. And DeMeo said, well, you know, there was, Donna was probably upset because there was a new woman in Mark's life. Wrong again. Not only had he been with Sharon for, I think it was at least like, three years at that well, point. I think it was more. I think they married in 84. So, like, And they had two of their own children. Yeah. And, you know, you talk to Donna. Donna does not give one lick for mark the other frustrating thing about our meeting with the police and we've all had we've all been involved in at least one is and again i'm sure he's a really wonderful guy but DeMeo clearly has never read any of this information because he doesn't know any of it correct and so maybe not that's not the guy that should be speaking to anybody about this case this is a person who argues things he doesn't know anything about because he's never done any of the work on the case. He was never an investigator on the case. Organizing a file hardly makes you an expert on a case. Well, he said he that was in the 2014 article, Sarah, I want to say. I believe so. And yeah. He, because yes. he, he organized it in 2011, the file. He and told me on my first call with him that that's what he did in 2011 because files get discombobulated. A lot of people go through them, so they need to be organized. So he organized it. Um, he also put her teeth um, in with the odontologist, and he reentered her into the missing children's database. And Donna says she was already in the missing persons database. So but he also my said- response to that is, uh, I guess not all heroes wear capes. He said to he it bothered me said that he entered her into the database because sometimes the database gets purged. And I thought, why is the National Missing Children's Database getting purged? I mean, that's not DeMeo's issue, but, you know, he did administrative things with the file. Um, I was not there for that meeting. I was not there to argue with Lieutenant DeMeo about when Sharon bought the gun or what gun Mark had or, you know, when Sharon and Mark got married. I dislike the insinuation that something happened to Doreen because there was still love lost between Mark and Donna because that is not the case at all. And even if it were, like we said before, that still doesn't mean you get to have your child taken away from you. Administrative work, not investigative work. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to jump in because now I'm just really angry. (laughs) Again, and my thought would be, and I know they listen to the podcast too, but the next time we have a meeting, please do us the courtesy of of going through the file. Read the yeah. file. So that it's actually, it's very insulting because it's very insulting to us when we walk in there <coughs> knowing more than you do. And fully yeah. prepared to yeah. talk. Yeah. And you couldn't even give us the courtesy of opening the file. You're wasting our time. You're wasting your own time. You're wasting the taxpayer's money. And you're making this family 
continue the suffering of 31 years. Yeah, and guys, if it doesn't get solved now, it's not getting solved. It's not going to be another 30 years and then all of a sudden, like, you know, the smoking gun comes and we find this little girl. Um, I've got two more big ones with the police, if you guys don't mind if I go through them right now. yourself out. All right, so Teresa Lyon, good friend of mine. Talked to her a lot. She's got a lot of good stuff to say. And I think a lot of people, like Joe, maybe you originally did or maybe the police do now, want to write her off as some sort of crackpot. Um, you know, Teresa, and you guys have gone over this, when she originally called the Wallingford Police Department and said, I was with Mark during this time that you lost him. I don't know who told her. They told her, nope, that was just a journalistic error because she had read it in the newspaper. Mark was missing for a year. It was a journalistic error. I brought that to DeMeo's attention. You know, why haven't you talked to Teresa Lyon? When did we meet with him, Sarah? Like Valentine's Day? Yeah, it was early on. It was like, it was February. It was February. Why haven't you talked to Teresa? He goes, oh, well, it was just a journalistic error that we lost Mark. And I said, or he had, I'm sorry. They had told Teresa that it was a journalistic error that they had lost Mark. They never lost sight of him. And I pointed out to Lieutenant DeMeo, Hmm. Uh, it's in the warrant that um, Hanley and Fliss um, swore to in front of a judge when they applied for the search warrant in Bethel. Okay, fine. You guys know this. DeMeo then said, well, how do you know it was an investigative technique that we used, um, making Mark think that he was missing? Again, you know, again, it's in the warrant. It's not a very good investigative technique. Um, you tricked the guy into thinking he got away with it by not following him or keeping your eye on him. That's, that's brilliant. They are still not in contact with Teresa. Teresa's called them multiple times. They do not take her phone call. Um, so funny you guys should say, come prepared. We know more than you. I mean, I think there's evidence lost to time that, um, you know, maybe they don't even know that it's out there. But when you're digging like me and, you know, microfiche rooms and all around, you know, administrative offices, whatever, you're going to find some weird stuff. So here's a letter that I found in my papers. Um, It's captioned Department of Police Service, 135 North Main Street, Wallingford, Connecticut, 06492. November 3rd, 1989. It's got the stamp of Joseph J. Bevan, Chief of Police. And uh, you mind if I read this? No, go ahead. I love this. This is addressed to Sergeant Jake Dallas, Bethel Police Department, Bethel, Connecticut, 06801, regarding Mark Vincent, Sunset Hill Road, Bethel, possession of handgun by convicted felon. On July 31st, 1989, our department executed a search and seizure warrant at the Vincent residence, Sunset Hill Road, Bethel, relative to the investigation of the suspicious disappearance of Mark Vincent's daughter. During the search, if you will recall, we recovered a handgun owned by Vincent, which he had his ex-wife purchased for him. Enclosed is our report detailing the circumstances surrounding Mark Vincent's possession of the handgun in the event you decide to do an arrest warrant for him, since the violation occurred in your town. We have the gun here, and we'll transfer it to your department for evidence in the event, in the event you decide to pursue this case. For intelligence purposes, Mark is now residing with a Teresa Johnson in Naugatuck, his driver's license is suspended, and he is reported to be carrying a cut-down shotgun with him. Signed, Sergeant Tom Hanley. Wow, Tom Hanley. Yeah. Hmm. That's a familiar name. He's the guy who doesn't want to speak about this case. 
to yeah. this podcast. And we've reached out to him a few times. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> this guy is, was famously interviewed about this case. Talked a lot in the 2001 article after already being a decade removed from the Wallingford Police Department. And here he is in this letter that you just read asking for another jurisdiction's help in arresting Mark Vincent. Well, I just I just love that name. I said, Teresa, did you ever go by Teresa Johnson? No, but my landlord was named Johnson. I said, okay. But, I mean, it could be off because I know Mark Vincent has had a lot of women, okay? Roseanne Poloni, his wife Kathy, Sharon, Donna, Teresa. Um, there are a couple other women whose name I won't mention, you know, in, until I talk to them. I'll get Fair a chance enough. to talk to them. Um, the, the records are littered with names of women that Mark has lived with, worked for. Um, but Teresa Johnson in Naugatuck, who uh, was reported to be carrying a cut-down shotgun with him, which Teresa Lyon told me about months ago, um, with a suspended driver's license because uh, they got pulled over one night and they were driving home and Mark was a little bit drunk and he did get his license suspended oh. for drinking. Interesting. It, you guys knew about Teresa Lyon, and you didn't question her. My question is, why? I would love to know why suddenly Tom Hanley has nothing to say about this case that he holds so near and dear to his heart and how important it is that it someday gets a resolution. He keeps her picture at his desk but doesn't want to do anything to help. Now, I just find that curious. That puts you in the same department as Mark Vincent. mm -hmm. That's not not the camp you want to be uh, settling down in. Well, don't forget, he took over the investigation, or I guess started the investigation in 89. This is from the 2001 article. You know, when I hear that they did so much stuff, they did such a good, dogged, thorough investigation. Hanley said in 2001 to Jason Barry of the Record Journal, I just got curious, I guess. I don't know what happened in the first year of the investigation. Not a whole lot of stuff was done, I guess. It was initially handled as a runaway. So nothing happened for at least a year because you guys were looking at that girl who there was no evidence of ever having left the house as a runaway. But that's probably when the really thorough investigation started, right? Right. Well, <laughs> I'm going to continue on this path because, guys, there's so much here. I mean, anybody on the, the, the Facebook posts who want to say that there's we're just grasping at straws and, you know, trying to throw stuff against the wall. Um, let's talk about Teresa's encounter with the police down in Naugatuck. Remember, she calls John Ragazzi of Meriden. He's a missing persons detective. She knows him um, from her, a mutual friend, her ex-husband. And... She thinks to herself, I'm going to win Mark's affection. I'm going to call this guy John Ragazzi. I'm going to help this guy find his daughter. This is going to be great. Because clearly Mark wants to find his daughter, right? No, he's in the fog, remember? Right? Right. <laughs> he's All in right. the fog. So, uh, you know, Teresa calls Meriden, and I said this, Joe, on one of the um, episodes that we recorded. Isn't Meriden's first reaction to call Wallingford PD? You'd think. It should be, right? So when I talk to detective number three, detective number three says, that makes no sense. So think about this, guys. Call Wallingford jurisdiction number one. They're handling Dorian's case. 
Teresa, she says, I didn't know who to call. I knew somebody in the missing persons department. I gave him a call. I thought he could help me. She calls jurisdiction number two, Meriden, and they arrange to meet her behind the Naugatuck Valley Mall in jurisdiction number three, Waterbury. That's weird. Detective number three told me that didn't happen because it makes no sense. I don't know. I believe Teresa. It's a very specific Yeah, but then, uh, again, you've got a letter from Hanley to Bethel asking for the help of another jurisdiction. So don't say that that wouldn't happen. You but know what you you're wouldn't, talking about. But here's the thing, Joe. You wouldn't take a witness. Jurisdiction two wouldn't take a witness to jurisdiction three and interview them there. Now, remember, too, they didn't interview her. They pulled in. She describes it as a... Uh, Ragazzi and two guys looking like the Blues Brothers with their long trench coats. I said, uh, cop uniforms? No, plain clothes. Okay. They met her there. Um, she had a very visceral memory of being in her white nurse's uniform. She got out of her car. She's up against the wall of the mall. She's smoking a cigarette and the cops flood into the parking lot. You know, again, she remembers it like it was yesterday. She said, I was really scared. I was really intimidated. Then Second encounter with uh, John Ragazzi, he comes to her apartment um, to look at her phone bill. Phone bill's very important. Now, Teresa thinks it's important because it's got Roseanne Poloni's number on it. She's going to call Roseanne Poloni, see what's up. She's not paying attention to John Ragazzi, who's like looking out the window trying to see if Mark is uh, coming home. Why are, if you're a cop, why are you scared of Mark coming home? He took the phone bill from her and he left, but not before he bragged to her you know, we got three warrants. You know how hard it is to get three warrants? So Meriden knew what Wallingford was up to, and Wallingford knew what Meriden was up to, and it's all around this one person, Teresa Lyon. They were all working together, and that opportunity got blown. And Ragazzi, for some reason, was the point person. Like, Hanley should have been down there with Teresa, right? And unfortunately, John Ragazzi has since passed away, as have many people involved in this case, so it's not like we could verify this information. So this a lot of this is, is a mystery, and we're taking Teresa's word for it. She's been a very credible person. Uh, I've mentioned a few times now that, that, you know, I personally didn't, I didn't think she sounded credible, so we went and put her through a vetting process, and everything she told us has checked out. This story is a little bizarre. We've been trying to confirm more of this story. We're still not sure what a lot of this even means, but again, we'll continue to work that out and, and hopefully we can uh, we can come to some sort of resolution as to as to what this all means and, and what this all was about. Because it's weird. No, they're playing fast and loose. Why? Why are they doing that? Well, they could certainly answer the question if they really wanted to. I'm sure it's in their file. The conclusion of our special episode of Listener Questions will be coming next. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Produced by Joe Aguirre, Jason Panette, and Maxwell McGee of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. 
Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.